It's the 6th of July, 1835. In Port Phillip Bay on the southeastern coast of Australia, it's winter and it's cold. A group of white men are sitting by a fire. The air smells like smoke and eucalyptus. Earlier that day, they'd shot two kangaroos. They're cleaning their muskets and sharing a loaf of bread. But then, out of the bush, appears a ghost. This ghost is a giant man, wearing possum skins and carrying a spear and club. He's dressed like one of the local indigenous people. But the men at the campfire notice, in astonishment, that this man is white. And he sits down right next to them at their fire. The ghost's lips are moving, but he can't seem to find the words. One of the men reaches for a piece of bread and hands it to him. The strange man smiles. Suddenly, the word is there. Bread, he says. The ghost shows them a tattoo that he has on his arm. A sun, a moon, a bird, and two English letters, W.B. He explains that those were his initials. William Buckley was his name, from another life, before he disappeared over 30 years earlier. I'm Amanda McGowan, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today we're telling you Australia's greatest story of escape and survival, the story of William Buckley. That's after this. time I took a road trip. How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide-open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. The story starts in 1802. A rotting wooden ship is floating in the Thames River in London. The city's jails are so overcrowded in this day and age that the government uses old warships to house prisoners. One of these prisoners is William Buckley. Buckley was caught with a stolen bolt of cloth in his possession, and he's been sentenced to death. So Buckley is in the hold of this ship with a manacle around his ankles. A guard lumbers up to him, clears his throat. He has an announcement. Buckley has gotten a reprieve on his death sentence. 
instead of the gallows, he'll soon be put away on another ship and sent away from here to perform hard labor in a strange, faraway place called Australia. William Buckley would have had no idea where Australia was. You know, it was called New Holland. England had decided to use it as a penal colony, a dumping ground for their convicts. This is Gary Linnell. He's an Australian journalist and author of a book on William Buckley. So they began sending out shiploads, and these ships were ships of misery. You know, they'd have six, seven hundred convicts on them below the decks. They wouldn't see sunlight for months at a time. A lot of them died of scurvy. Hell holes, essentially. After months at sea, Buckley lands on Australia's southeast coast in a place called Sullivan Bay. He's among 300 prisoners, some free settlers, and Marines who have been tasked with building a new colonial outpost here. They landed in the wrong spot and tried to set up this, this penal colony. It was full of snakes, kangaroos, no fresh water. They had to sink um, wooden casks into the sand of the beach just to filter it through. Dysentery was rampant. Buckley is set to work laying bricks. It's tough work in the hot sun with nothing but salty, badly filtered water to drink. It's pretty dismal. People are drunk, insubordinate, and theft is rampant. The colony seems on the verge of falling apart. And it doesn't take long before Buckley begins to plot an escape. It's 1803, a few days after Christmas. Buckley and four other men gather their supplies. A stolen musket, an iron kettle, some pots, and a few days worth of rations. Then, around nine in the evening, they make a run for it. Chaos erupts immediately. A shot rings out. One of the men is immediately struck down. The others keep running. He thought he was walking to China. He wasn't very well educated. And most of these convicts believed that China was probably two or three hundred miles north of where they were. Actually, the nearest colony, Sydney, is 600 miles away. And after a few days, the vastness of the land dawns on them. With their rations long gone, they forage for succulents and shellfish to eat. But hunger looms. Finally, Buckley's companions decide to turn back and take whatever punishment they get. A flogging will be horrible, but at least they'll have full stomachs. But Buckley decides he can't return. He'll keep going no matter what. Back at the Sullivan Bay encampment, William Buckley is officially written off for dead. Around a year goes by. One day, two Aboriginal women come across a body sleeping under a bush. This man is tall, but drawn thin from starvation and covered in blisters and scabs. And his skin is white. And they basically began tearing their hair out and beating their chests because they thought they'd discovered a ghost. Because he was white-skinned, they'd never come across anyone with white skin before. In their first encounters, they believed that white men were spirits of the dead and they'd come back to them. These women were Wadarung, an Aboriginal group who had been living in this part of Australia for 25,000 years. They lived seasonally, following sources of food from place to place, and they also cultivated eel farms and grew yams. Once these women see Buckley, who appears to them like a reincarnation of a warrior, they decide that they're going to take him in and teach him how to live off the land and take care of it, like they do. 
He's had to learn how to throw a spear. He's had to learn how to throw a boomerang. He's had to learn how to use a shield. He's had to learn how to eat different foods. And there's a lot of poisonous food in the Australian landscape. So you know, the Wadarung people would have had to teach him, don't eat that leaf. Leave that weed alone. The Wadarung people even give Buckley a new name, Morangurk. It's the name of a former warrior, a spirit raised from the dead. He spent 32 years with them. Um, he became uh, part of their customs. He understood how to travel and navigate at night using just the constellations. He became a vital member and also uh, what they called one of the wise old men as he, as he grew older. We assume that he was there to sort of settle disputes sometimes. He didn't fight many of the battles with other tribes, but he was a, a bit of a peacemaker. But there's another group encroaching that will be harder to make peace with. In the 1830s, more and more white men with guns are circling. One of them is named John Batman. In 1835, Batman draws up a treaty to buy hundreds of thousands of acres of land from a neighboring Aboriginal community. Looking at it today, this treaty was clearly exploitative. Indigenous Australian people didn't believe in private land ownership, and they likely thought that Batman was trying to negotiate some kind of shared usage with them. There's also evidence that Batman may have forged their signatures altogether. So basically, it was land theft. It's Batman's men who are gathered on July 6, 1835, watching over their fire. Some accounts say that Buckley wanted to warn Batman's men of a plot to kill them. Or maybe he was just curious. Whatever his reasoning, the ghost of William Buckley emerges from the woods and sits down by their campfire. When Batman's men hear Buckley's story, they can't believe their ears. As this ghost slowly regains his command of the English language, they listen in disbelief to his tales of escape and living with the Waterung people. Amazed at his huge stature, they measure him. He's six foot six. And they look at his forearm tattoo, the drawing of the sun, the moon, and a bird, and the initials WB. After a few days, Batman's men get in touch with someone from the old prison camp at Sullivan Bay. And they confirmed that a WB, William Buckley, escaped 30 years ago and was never seen since. Shockingly, this man seems to be exactly who he says he is. And straight away, they realized that they had this unique asset. They could actually use Buckley as an interpreter and as a negotiator for them with all of the local tribes as they tried to take over their lands. Batman secures a pardon for Buckley. He's still a wanted criminal, after all. And he puts him to work. Surprisingly, after 30 years with the Waterung people, Buckley now rejoins the white colonizers. He's still acting as a sort of go-between, but very soon it becomes clear that the men that he's joined aren't looking to compromise. They're looking to take over. The land Batman has purchased needs to be cleared so that imported British sheep can be raised on it. But this transforms the land and it destroys the sources of food that Aboriginal people had relied on for thousands of years. Over time, Buckley becomes profoundly unsettled by the work that he's doing. I think he became very distressed by the time that area that he had roamed for 32 years with the Wadarung had been taken over by farmers and pastoralists. The Aboriginal population went from about 60,000 
down to less than 800. And by the time the colonials thrived, they unloaded their sheep, which destroyed a lot of the natural environment and the habitat. They gave them alcohol. They gave them sugar. They introduced venereal diseases uh, and, and other illnesses that ran rampant through these communities. They had no immunity whatsoever. And Buckley looked at this in despair. Buckley feels he's distrusted by both sides, and he decides to give up this uneasy job of being a go-between. After two years, Buckley jumps on a ship and goes down to Tasmania, then known as Van Diemen's Land. There, he meets a young Irish widow, and they get married. Buckley gets a job working as a guard at a women's prison. And I, I think it's fair to say that he probably lived the last 20 years of his life in Van Diemen's Land, you know, brokenhearted. At the age of 74, Buckley is thrown from a horse-drawn carriage, and he later dies of his injuries. Though it's been more than 150 years since William Buckley's death, there are places in Australia where his legacy bubbles up to the surface. Years before he wrote a biography of William Buckley, Gary Linnell was just a kid growing up in Geelong, a city on Port Phillip Bay. And his parents used to take him to this local lighthouse, which was on a rocky, windswept outcrop. We'd go down to the beach and have a swim and catch crabs in the, in the, in the small rock pools. And up on the top of the cliff was this cave. And there were bars around it and empty Coke cans and litter everywhere. And no one ever really took it seriously. This cave had a mysterious name. Buckley's Cave. But it wasn't until years later, when Gary started researching his book on William Buckley, that he understood the full story of the connection. Looking through an old botanist's diary, Gary learned that William Buckley had sheltered in this cave from time to time. But in the decades after his death, Buckley's story largely fell out of circulation in Australia, reduced to a myth of the, quote, wild white man. My theory, and it's a very strong theory and it gets backed up by a lot of the sources, is that Buckley lived at a time, unfortunately for him, where most of the historians of the period were white supremacists and they looked at his time living with the Indigenous communities as an aberration. I mean, they would have said, and they did say, what can we possibly learn from his experiences living with the Wadarung people? While Buckley's story faded into the background, John Batman was lionized and celebrated as a founding hero. Recently, though, there's been a public reckoning in Australia about this period of history. In the last couple of years, John Batman's name has been stripped off of parks in Melbourne and his statues torn down. A figure like Buckley, who had a foot in both worlds, feels more relevant. There's been a kind of a revival over the last few years in interest about his um, experiences. And I think that's because Australians have less slowly have finally come to terms with what was done with the Indigenous communities uh, at the time of colonisation. And interestingly, even people in Australia who don't know Buckley's story still invoke his name from time to time. Growing up as a, as a kid in Australia, someone would say, oh, gee, I think I'm going to ask that girl out on Saturday night and see if she'll go on a date with me. And my friend would say, oh, mate, you've got Buckley's. The Buckley's chance, and we always say it, people say it all the time. I think it's definitely, it comes from William Buckley himself, Buckley's chance, and it is one of the great Australian sayings. We've got a lot of unique sayings 
in, in Australia, but Buckley's is my favorite. It's pretty fitting that a man who has become famous for his story of survival has found even more ways to live on and on and on. Special thanks to Gary Linnell for sharing William Buckley's story with me. And you should check out his book. It's called Buckley's Chance. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Devin DeComo, Chica Okoye, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. If you'd like to learn more, head to atlasobscura.com. There is a link in our episode description. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall, and I'm Amanda McGowan, wishing you all the wonder in the world. See you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.